I think intellectual folks, folks who think about these things, tend to try to like memorize all the kinds of fallacies and biases. And honestly, the easier way to do this, and it's funny because this is in itself like a heuristic that cuts off a lot of complexity, is um, basically just to remember that when looking at something, most people either want to find something in particular or do not want to find something. And so just, you know, to check yourself and go, you know, this answer that I landed on, is there some reason why I would have been inclined to like that answer. Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Kyle Russell, who does partnerships at Skydio and used to be at AZ16 and TechCrunch. Um, and we're here to talk about the relationship between stress and creativity. And Kyle has some amazing things to say about how reading helps him solve problems. Um, so could you go over that three-step process you were just talking about? Yeah, so uh, before we started recording, one of the things we were talking about is uh, the sheer volume of reading that I do. Uh, for the last two years, I read uh, 45 and then 46 books per year, so almost a book a week. Um, and you know, you were asking about kind of the motivation behind reading that kind of insane sheer volume of content, and you know what I was hoping to get out of it, what I was hoping to accomplish. And so, yeah, I've got this roughly three-step process for creative problem solving, as well as you know, executing on creative products, uh, projects more generally. So the first is to identify uh, basically the constraints that you're operating within for the given problem or project. So that might be, you know, what are the constraints uh, in the industry that you're building a product for or the market that you're trying to get to? What channels do they, you know, do you need to go through to reach them? What kind of product expectations do people have? Or on the creative side, you know, what genre are you trying to write for your novel, or your screenplay? What are the expectations people have when they see content from that genre? How can you either play up to those expectations or subvert them? Identifying those constraints is a critical first step. Second, then, is to look at basically all prior examples you can find of attempts people have made to solve that problem or, again, uh, speak to or counter assumptions, uh, people's expectations. And then the third step is to try to map the lessons from both successes and failures from those previous attempts to your current circumstances, such that you know instead of having to uh, navigate uncertainty and try things by gut and trial and error and experiments, basically use people's previous attempts, previous lessons learned to identify you know the territory on the map that's safe to go to, the places where you're not going to find immediate death or failure. So then are there problems that have not been approached previously and do not have prior examples? So I think this is true, especially you know when you're at the forefront of a given area of knowledge. 
um, or if you're really pushing on something that is kind of a paradigmatic change. However, I think that people would be surprised. I think it's counterintuitive the extent to which what looks like a new groundbreaking disruptive idea is actually just kind of the latest form of an older idea mm. in circumstances that are basically lend themselves to that thing working out mm. uh, now versus mm-hmm. perhaps circumstances in the past where it wasn't set up to succeed. Um, so oftentimes what looks like a novel territory or idea is actually uh, you know something there's something analogous in the past that you can look at that is similar. Mm. And this is what I've been seeing in my reading about uh, about history and the history of innovation is that uh, many of these ideas have been thought of a long time ago. Uh, um, networks were thought of like, you know, 100 years ago. So what is it about? So is it just luck that basically defines when whether somebody will kind of catch on to it at the right time? I think that there's a lot to luck, um, you know, especially when you look at things like, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley here, big focus is you know, the impact of Moore's law, the idea that the density of transistors on chips was increasing exponentially and that over time that was allowing new uh, applications to be built on top of them. Um, Humans have a very bad grasp of compounding exponential things. Uh, We're used to linear, like what's going to happen over a relatively short time frame. Uh, The idea of compounding or really long-term transformation is kind of hard to wrap our heads around. Mm. Um, Our brains just aren't quite built for it. So... Mm. One challenge that you run into there is uh, seeing exponential growth in the underlying, you know, platform as in computing or a trend more broadly is uh, poorly extrapolating what that means about the future in a given time frame. This is, you know, an idea from investing is you can give like a prediction of price or you can give the idea that something will happen on a date, but you don't want to like tie the two together. Like you can, you don't want to uh, say that it's very easy to be wrong saying when something will happen, even if you can predict that something will eventually happen Mm. given some long-term trend. Mm. Uh, So it's easy to fall into that trap. Do you think there's value in adapting your brain to a non-linear form of thinking? I mean, maybe thought itself is linear, but uh, do you find any value in maybe certain practices that open you up to the the non-linearity of reality? Yeah, so I I think that this is just kind of another area where, generally speaking, it's helpful to have a prepared mind, to have an understanding of what biases you're likely to encounter in other people or in your own thinking. Um, I don't know that you can 100% mitigate the effects, but this is an idea from Charlie Munger, uh, you know, the idea of building out a latticework of mental models about how the world works and then checking you know, information about something that you're doing, you know, is this lining up with my model of reality? And if not, why is that deviation happening? And using that constant checking of your own assumptions versus what's actually happening in reality is the best way to mitigate the effects of having those Mm -hmm. kinds of biases or basically the inability to uh, intuitively think in terms of compounding. Mm, Very interesting. Just be aware that compounding happens. Yeah. Do you find that there's any downsides to viewing reality only through mental models? Uh, I think that in terms of my own experience, something that I've run into is um, once you start to consider many perspectives and to get yourself into a frame of mind where you can have several different perspectives in your head and not 
completely collapse under cognitive dissonance of, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact that oftentimes the truth has elements that are complementary, but also at different points uh, conflicting. Um, Yeah, if you get too preoccupied with mental models, you spend a lot of time doing what economists do. You know, FDR made fun of, like, the idea of economists always saying, on one hand, on the other, Mm. but on another hand, uh, it's like, just give me a one-handed economist. (laughs) Um, I, I think that that's something that I've run into as I've kind of internalized this idea of mental models and trying to update your priors is you just, you consider so many perspectives that it's hard to choose one and operate with in uncertainty um the fact that you know uh, the way i think about it is i'm applying like bayesian weights to different beliefs and the extent to which i'm i think they're true in different situations and Mm. at some point you're thinking too hard you just need to act (laughs) Uh and then there's the component of intuition what is the relationship between intuition and the intellect and and intuition and mental models so i think that it can depend based on the extent to which you're talking about having a prepared mind about a given subject. So at sometimes intuition can hurt you in that the world is often counterintuitive. And so following your gut after not particularly examining the ground truth in any given set of circumstances can lead you astray from you know, the appropriate interpretation of reality. On the other hand, if you are you know curious about things, building out your mental models, preparing a prepared mind Mm -hmm. about a given subject. I think what that does for you is it trains your intuitive sense of things. Mm -hmm. And so your gut reaction to given circumstances or new information ends up having, um, you know, basically have acting on a heuristic based on those mental models. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can act on gut in a way as if you were doing lots of computation. So it's essentially this continuous rechecking with both your intellect and your intuition. You train your intuition to uh, check back with the uh, intellect and you train your intellect to check back with the intuition, basically. That is a good summary and uh, definitely can throw you through a loop. Um, (laughs) Am I reacting, you know, intuitively or uh, is my brain going to just the laziest easiest to access example is also mm. a problem that you run into there mm. of, um, you know, is this the end result of a considered opinion on something or mm. you've only heard one or two perspectives on something and the one you remember is the one that your gut is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that you can run into there. And this is, this is what uh, Daniel Kahneman talks about with thinking fast and thinking slow, right? Is the system one and system two and how to train both of them essentially to become more adept at dealing with reality. Yeah, and I mean, there is an element of training. Of, I think mm. there, there is something to having a particular mindset that says, you know, I know that I'm going to be biased or lean into, uh, you know, intellectual fallacies quite easily because I'm human. And so watch out for those things. And, you know, one thing that I kind of think about there is um, I think intellectual folks, folks who think about these things, mm-hmm. tend to try to like memorize all the kinds of fallacies and biases. Yeah. And honestly, the easier way to do this, and it's funny because this is in itself like a heuristic that cuts off a lot of complexity, mm-hmm. is um, basically just to remember that when looking at something, most people either want to find something in particular or do not want to find something. Mm-hmm. And so just you know to check yourself and go, you know, this answer that I landed on, is there some reason why I would have inclined to like that answer Mm. and this 
very subtle and nuanced. And actually, I'm not sure whether you have a meditation practice, but this is this is something that often happens with people on this path of meditation, which mm-hmm. is essentially that uh, aversion and attraction. These are the two things that are basic to human human uh, life is that we're we are attracted to some things and we are averse to other things. And so but once you find that that out, and once you start believing that you fall into a trap, which is essentially I'm attracted to this thing. I don't want to be attracted to this thing. So I will now be averse to this attraction. And you're still st- stuck in the same loop. And so it's a very subtle, nuanced thing, which is very difficult to talk about, which is essentially, can I find this middle path in between these two things? And look, okay, I'm averse to that. Well, that's really interesting. What is, what's going on here? Why am I averse to this? Why am I attracted to this? And not really getting caught up in the mental attraction and, and stuff like that. So Yeah, I'm, I'm deeply fascinated with this basically, you know, at two ends of the spectrum, having truth and true wisdom being for right now, which perspective is most appropriate, you know, again, coming from meditation, the idea of having to reach this, like calm tension um, in your own thinking of knowing that your nature is going to react a certain way to some new input, watch for it, but also to some extent you have to embrace how your brain works mm-hmm. and how you think mm-hmm. um, you can't just try to go to some ideal. Sometimes you do want to lean into what makes your mm-hmm. perspective unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about stress and what your definition of stress is and uh, how it's played a role in your life, particularly in the context of creativity. Yeah. So this is tough uh, stress. I don't know. I, I guess I would go to uh, the, like why zebras don't get ulcers, mm-hmm. you know, stress is, you know, the feeling of anxiety of, uh, I'd say existential concerns or existential risk. Um, you know, whether it's literal or figurative of, <laughs> am I going to die mm-hmm. or, Oh no, in, you know, my professional circumstances or in this, how I'm going to be seen in this social circle, you know, is there true existential failure on the horizon? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that's manifested for me is, uh, basically via imposter syndrome, um, throughout my life and relatively short career, uh, I've been in a situation where I've been lucky enough to take on opportunities that were just beyond my comfortable threshold of competence. Mm. And I've had to stretch myself. And it's led to amazing growth opportunities, but at the same time, mm. it's literally always been true that I am not qualified to do whatever <laughs> I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and so that's, it, you know, definitely comes with a lot of stress of, mm. I know that I have to grow into this to succeed and live up to, you know, the end goal that this person that's making a bet on me has, mm. you know, decided that, yeah, they do think I can pull it off. And that's huge because that's not only it has expectations of someone else, which you just pointed to in your terms of the social dynamics of essentially existential threat to my social place uh, by somebody who's given me an opportunity. So if I screw this up, then that means that I've failed that test, right? So that, oh, oh, yeah, that's that's wrapped up in there. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and so how does that stress manifest? How does it, uh, it, it sounds almost like not a, the base definition of, of stress, which could be... Um, well, the, the most basic definition of stress is what gravity does to us, what brings us to the earth, like stress on our physical thing. Right. And then there's the stress, psychological stress, uh, which is fear of death or fear of uh, social um, uh, exclusion. 
but then there's this other stress, which uh, another guest recently talked about, which is almost like a psychic stress, which is happens very particularly like and uh, like in the moment. An example of this would be in a negotiation over salary or something like that, where you, where that requires a sense of presence in the moment mm. that allows you to counter uh, whatever other stress that person is, is placing on you that and also perceived stress. So it's like a, a, a sense of will almost like you're and, and that requires training of meditation, which helps and stuff like that. Um, what do you think about that? That sense of psychic stress? So in part, I almost feel like these different kinds of stresses are some things that pop up in different circumstances or are felt more strongly more straightforwardly by people who kind of fall into different personas Mm. um Mm -hmm. something that i thought a lot about ahead of this conversation was uh the person who is under constant stress and it's a constraint they're operating within when they have to act creatively and i'm imagining like different listeners of this Mm. podcast and that would be basically like the business person who's Mm. trying to be a creative problem solver and on the other end there's the artiste Mm. uh the Mm. person who wants to be a creative has a powerful compulsion to output original thoughts original concept original art but uh stress they feel about that process kind of blocks that output Mm. And I think that the kind of stress you're talking about there uh, is more so felt by that latter mm, persona. Yep. Um, and so this is where I think, you know, when I, when I think about that kind of stress, I look to um, actually a book that's commonly recommended for folks who are experiencing writer's block, The Artist's Way mm-hmm. by Julia Cameron. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a book I came across um, after the recommendation from Brian Koppelman. Mm-hmm. He's the writer of the show Billions, mm-hmm. which... Um, I will admit I actually haven't seen, but I hear great things about it. Um, but uh, working my way through that book, uh, I believe it was last year, the year before, again, I read just so much that uh, <laughs> uh, I can remember the lessons, but not the timeline of when I got to it. Um, but basically, the process it kind of ascribes for um, you know getting past these kinds of feelings, this stress, this eventual, you know, when it comes to a head writer's block, uh, is basically doing something along the lines of meditation or therapy. It's journaling longhand three pages in a notebook every day. Free form too. Right. Uh, Basically like stream of consciousness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to basically one, let yourself see for a fact that, Oh, I can crank out three pages a day. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I can do that, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, keep that up for a month and a half and I've written a script. So, you know, I I have achieved something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Get in the habit of it. Get little wins in the form of the journaling. Show yourself that bigger wins are possible. Um, But at another level, what it does is it lets you like meditation, see Mm -hmm. what you think about things and why. And then it also gets you comfortable with your own voice. And this is a problem that I think leads to some of this like stress that eventually blocks you from acting as an, someone who falls into this artiste persona mm-hmm. is that uh, you have a sense of taste. This is something that I think Ira Glass has spoken about in the past about podcasting of mm-hmm. something that creative-minded folks have is you initially before you get used to doing the craft, you are drawn to it because you have a sense of taste for that medium. Mm-hmm. But because before you do a lot of reps, before you actually get used to executing against 
the frameworks of that genre mm -hmm. uh, in your own voice. You're not comfortable with how your voice or your way of talking about things deviates from the norm or the examples you're used to. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's what stops you. And so just letting yourself put something out there right. in a non-judgmental way lets you kind of clear that mental blockage, that psychic blockage. And that, that voice that you're talking about, that thing that makes you different, which we're all uncomfortable with, is the thing that most people find success with because we're not looking for things that fit our our preconceived note we're looking for things to, to su surprise us to take us right. out of our conditioned mind and stuff we're think we're look we're looking for things that completely blow us out of the water and that only comes from this individuation this originality that exists inside of these creative people uh yeah no this is something that you know julia cameron she gets a little you know uh Woof. fluffy oh, with yeah. this in that you know she describes this being the self and that the self is like a manifestation of god and so mm -hmm. you know I, i'm sure plenty of folks listening will kind of hear that and go oof uh okay i'll read the cliff notes um but you know you also look at i recently read this kind of long essay short novella uh not novel but short book by oswald spangler mm. uh, man and Technics. Mm. And core part of that is the idea that, you know, big transformative ideas are like an artifact of strong individual personalities, mm. not something that emerges from the masses. Mm. You don't see mm. original concepts arrive from consensus. You see it come from someone who, mm. take, again, takes elements that we have seen before, but then combines them in novel ways. Yeah, very interesting. So I want to go back to this this archetype that you mentioned of the businessman and creativity, and I didn't quite understand that. So if you could redefine this the create sense of creativity in the business sense, and then I want to ask you which one do you fall under, or maybe uh, you fall under both, but different levels. Yeah. So when I think about this, I think about um, an another book along these lines that I found very compelling: uh, "Strategic Intuition: The Creative Spark in Human Achievement" by William Dugan, and this was more about uh, creative solutions to big problems and how, um, mm. again, more on the end of mm. not necessarily I'm trying to create new novel artwork, but I'm trying to solve problems in novel ways and ways that are, you know, break out of what we've otherwise landed on in the status quo. And there, I think the kind of main difference is this is a person where the pressure and stress from not having reached an ideal solution mm. comes from external sources as opposed to internal sources. Mm. I think that's the big deviation between the two personas I've mm. mentioned. Mm -hmm. That the artiste is like self-loathing mm. <laughs> because they're not writing the thing they want to write. Yeah. They're not writing, they're not cranking out the great American novel, whereas mm. this other persona is operating within a system where they need to achieve external validation and external su uh, success. And that is shaping the stress they feel because mm. of not having, again, generated this unique creative solution to a given problem. Very interesting. And do you think this that existential or external sense of, of threat for a business type person, do you think that exists before they start the business? Or is that only after they've built a business of 50 people with all those 50 people depending on them to create something of value? I think that the kinds of people who eventually have uh, a business that you know looks like that uh, end up feeling that pressure well before they're yeah. at that point yeah. I think that part of why you are drawn to starting a company with grand visions and looking for billion dollar outcomes 
at some point stems from wanting external validation to have made a recognizable impact. Mm. Um, This is really tied in with um, concepts like Joseph Campbell's monomyth. This is something I've been blogging about a little bit recently is the idea that, you know, for business people, but especially the, you know, the founders of companies looking to raise capital, for instance, um, there's this expectation that you will take your life narrative and project it onto the monomyth structure of, you know, there was this terrible past set of circumstances, the status quo, and that was going to lead to nowhere good. Mm. And so we had to leave the world that we knew, you know, myself and my co-founders, the team I previously mm. worked with, mm. go into unknown circumstances, go through trials and tribulations. And oh. you know what? We had near-death experiences, but we came back the better for it, transformed, able to take on this challenge that I'm describing for you now. <laughs> yeah. I'm the perfect founder to you know, uh-huh. build this big company. Um, and, you know, it's something where, you know, if you take the venture capitalists, the inventors, uh, investors perspective, looking at a founder's ability to tell that story, to shape circumstances to that narrative structure, uh, you know, if you can do that, it means you'll probably be able to be a compelling storyteller to customers, future investors, mm-hmm. potential partners, potential hires. And that's very powerful as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, storytelling is am- amazingly impactful. But you know, th- the flip side is that uh, it's possible once you've told that story dozens and hundreds of mm-hmm. times that eventually you believe it a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. And maybe you think that your life does fit into this grand narrative structure when in reality, life doesn't follow a three-act structure. Yeah. Uh, you are not perhaps the perfect you know candidate to uh, go at a problem and solve it especially you know the kind of big structural systemic things mm. that you know get people really excited and so you know one of the biggest sources of failure is basically operating too long against a mental model that deviates from reality mm. and extending the deviance of that mm. uh, you know between mental model and reality over time which is what happens when you like scale something against the wrong ideas. And so uh, I think that's something to watch out for. Mm. And uh, that's tricky because you've got these external sources of validation that are telling you, oh, you fit this model. We give you this money. These employees are saying, oh, you're the one, you're the leader. And then the, the reality kind of you know does a, th- a 180 on you and then changes the circumstances for what you're doing. But so you've got this story and then you've got reality and they're not matching up together anymore and what do you do about that and that's a big problem right? yeah and, and that's you know we talked earlier about non-linearities mm-hmm. and that's something where mm-hmm. um you know like the hemingway quote about going broke it was like first it was slow then all of a sudden it was fast um you know that's something where it's a slowly exponentially compounding phenomenon that that distancing from reality you know can be looking at metrics versus what you were claiming you were going to accomplish in, you know, your pitch deck. And it's, uh, it's only a couple of percent per month relative to what we thought our growth would be. And uh-huh. eventually that becomes like, oh, you're not 10x bigger, you're 2x bigger. Yeah, and uh, yeah. that's not mm. what we were excited to fund. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's something to watch for is, again, this goes back to looking at reality versus your model of reality, the story you're telling and mm. just trying to figure out if there's uh, a, a gap there, uh, what's it what's it coming from? Mm. Mm. That's great. So, what are you creating, or what are you helping to create, and why are you doing it? 
So uh, on the professional side, uh, working at Skydio, a company that makes fully autonomous flying robots, mm. uh, basically you know a drone that fits in your backpack, but um, you know operates like an incredibly advanced ro- uh, you know robotic system where it. You know, our product that launched last year uh, in February 2018, Skydio R1, has 13 cameras and with six pairs of them uh, facing every direction, it's able to make a 3D map of its environment and not hit things and mm-hmm. run neural nets that know what things are. And so you can build flight logic where it essentially knows how to move itself around to accomplish different tasks. Um, I have always been drawn to deep tech uh, to things that feel like they are like genuinely paradigm changes in a given space. And, you know, as someone who is an enthusiast about the drone market going back now, let's say a little bit more than half a decade, um, this is something where I think that it's been obvious that drones could, could be transformative. Mm. You know, they could be the family camcorder of the future, letting everyone be in the shot, but capturing the memory. They could radically transform how we look at infrastructure over time. You know, we're not going to send people 300 miles out into the middle of nowhere, California, to look at power lines. And that leads to massive wildfires. But maybe if we had robots that could, you know, just move along a wire, uh, you know, miles at a time and automatically Mm -hmm. detect things that shouldn't be there in terms of circumstances, um, you you could solve really big problems. And uh, if you look at why over the last couple of years, drones haven't necessarily lived up to those visions, you know, we don't have Amazon doing delivery just yet Mm. uh, via flying robot. Um, It basically came down to, uh, to do those things where, you know, we knew we could capture data that would be valuable or carry something, uh, you know, the size of a piece of toothpaste or some shoes. Uh, It's that you needed a skilled pilot in the loop to have drones do anything. Mm. And, you know, what was compelling all the way back to the first time I met the Skydio folks back in fall 2015 was, oh, they made a system that (laughs) genuinely flies this thing better than I could after a lot of practice. Uh, Um, uh. And that was clear even when, you know, it was a prototype that was literally x86 PC flying around on a 3D printed frame. And, Mm. you know, it was, you know, a big, scary monstrosity. You you could see where it was going to go. Interesting. And so I love the opportunity to work on something that feels like it's genuinely transformative. Mm. Um, Leaving the professional space, if it's okay to have a little bit more of a rambly answer, uh, I also, I I think I kind of, at various times, live up to both of the personas that I've described. Mm. And so on the artiste side, again, also channeling some of the thinking in uh, the artist's way, I definitely feel a pressure to express myself creatively as kind of a background humming in my brain. Um, I definitely consider the opportunity to write expressively as a release that also refuels me to work on other kinds of problems. Mm. And so uh, one thing I'd have as a side project right now is a uh, partially completed screenplay um, that's kind of a horror movie about a startup building a brain-computer interface. People always assume it's going to be Black Mirror. I, I say yes, but also I'm sad that an entire genre has now been tied up to a single show. Mm. Uh, again, maybe that just provides expectations that you can now you can deviate break, yeah. from. Uh, but um, yeah, that, those are kind mm. of the two ends of the spectrum of what I'm working on creatively um, mm. that I'm drawn to. And that goes into my question, which is uh, so to set it up, we've had technology that 
10 years ago would have seemed transformative, like what you're talking about, for example, Facebook, social media, connecting people from all around the globe with all their social network and then people outside of their social network so that now I can reach out to anybody to come on this podcast. Those are the benefits. And then there are these unintended consequences of those deep of that deep technology, for example, uh, bots that are on Twitter or all these different kind of negative side effects that we didn't see coming and weren't part of that narrative, which were like, oh, we're creating this amazing thing. We're going to change the world and then, you know, I'll, I'll change the world in ways that we didn't expect. And then we get into this negative side where people only start to see the negative side. Uh, and so you in this autonomous uh, drone vehicle uh, uh, um, space and then writing about it, writing about something separate, which is the the, the computer. What do you see from where we are right now? What do you look at like 10 years from now? What are those same problems, those same negative side that we don't see yet? Well, so generally, I um, first want to call out that um, an, an idea that I've been noodling about recently while reading uh, The Revolt of the Public by Martin Gurry, mm. um, which is kind of about the information overload generated by the internet and social media and you know, having many, many more amateurs commenting on things and generating information about things than when it was previously you know, limited to specific mm -hmm. gatekeepers having control of the dissemination of information is this idea that humans tend to look at very narrow problems to solve mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the big systemic picture. And that means that when we come up with solutions to those narrow problems, we ha impact the context around the problem mm -hmm. un basically unintentionally. Most of, most of the effects of the, the interventions we take on any given problem uh, are not what we were intending. Uh, and so, yeah, your, your impact on the world is always like outsized relative to what you had, were hoping to do going into, mm. um, you know, solving some problem. So, yeah, when I think about the future, I think, you know, starting with this idea of like automation, uh, there's, it's interesting because automations, you know, what, what people think is scary about this wave of automation versus past waves of the industrial revolution and production lines um, is that, okay, now it involves knowledge work. Uh, that now it's not just manipulation of physical stuff. Mm -hmm. It's um, understanding things and acting on that understanding. Um, and the automation is doing that knowledge work, are you saying? Uh, theoretically. And okay. um, this is where also, I, you know, economists who talk about this issue are like where is the impact of this stuff in any economic data yeah. uh why doesn't productivity actually look like it's rising yeah. when theoretically these robots are taking all of our jobs mm. and that just might be that you know we're seeing a lot of work being done that actually hasn't been deployed in the market and mm. so mm. we're basically having people like realize that it's something to fear now mm. but not necessarily having like something to act against mm. um you know in, in the real world outside of, you know, very early deployments of robots in warehouses and factories and, you know, very narrow applications of self-driving vehicles. But um, generally, I think that we're going to see this wave of automation cause, for instance, more stress over time rather than less, which I think is a counterintuitive result to get to. Um, you would think, you know, Automation means productivity goes up, which means that you get the same level of output for less work. You know, this you take this to an extreme, you get the John Maynard Keynes idea that, you know, by our time, because of you know, he you know, he envisioned the automation that would come, 
uh, we'd all be working 15 hour weeks. Yep. And what do we do with all this time? Um, and the reality is that humans acclimate to our material circumstances very quickly. And our bar goes up very quickly, uh, regardless of what level you've achieved in material comfort. And so rather than accepting the same for less work, there's a tendency to want to get more for the same amount of work or a lot more for even more work than that. Um, and then on the flip side, to the extent that the introduction of these different technologies and ways of doing things and organizing ourselves that have given us more time, um, you know, the move from hunter-gatherer to farmer to industrial labor to knowledge and service work is also just more time to ponder the circumstances around us. Um, I'm reading a book right now called The Age of Gold by H.W. Brands and, you know, there's this section that talks about the kinds of people that were drawn to the gold rush in California in the mm. mid 1800s. Mm. And, you know, there were farmers where, mm. you know, they say, you know, a farmer doesn't have time to consider poetry. Like uh -huh. you are up from before sun goes up and you, you go back to bed after, you know, by the time it's dark, you've been, you know, working your butt off all day. Mm. Uh, there's no time to think about the metaphysical things in life. And over time, you know, one, those things did become accessible, but then basically, the scope of things outside of our current physical circumstances that we consider, that we have information about, that we start to have an opinion on has expanded. And this has been amplified by the internet and social media. We're just aware of all the social injustice, mm -hmm. of the inequality, mm -hmm. of the hypocrisy of different groups that we consider maybe an in-group or an out-group depending on you know, how we see ourselves. And so there's these dual things of wanting more material wealth no matter what level we've reached and being aware of all of the things that are mm. like wrong and that you, there's just some reason to be upset about and i'm i'm not optimistic that without some kind of political or technical shock to the system mm. you know that would get us away of this trapped for ever more stress mm -hmm. uh, despite seemingly you know having more prosperity to mm. go around mm -hmm. very interesting yeah, and that, so what do you mean by technical, I understand political, but what do you mean by technical shift? Um, so not just shift, but actually you know, shock. shock. Oh, okay. um, the idea that um, uh, right now it feels like um, despite the fact that vaguely, uh, you know, liberal democracy plus capitalism does seem to work pretty well for generating wealth for large segments of society, you know, first the Western world, then as countries in you know, Asia and Eastern Europe have adopted, you know, basically neoliberal reforms, market-based reforms, mm. have seen wealth explode. Mm. Um, you know, just skepticism that following that path, you know, is sustainable, is going to, you know, work out for further generations. Mm. Um, and so it feels like... <laughs> You know, we need some kind of transformative change of automation, basically enabling a even way higher level of mm. uh, quality of life uh, at way way lower costs, mm. such that the expectation that you know my kid's life will be better than my life was, and their kid's life will just again. be insanely decadent. Yeah. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. You know, you need uh. we need to overcome basically like a plateau we seem to have hit, mm. um, and I. The reason I said technology or political is that I think that 
it's to some extent going to have to involve a change in regulation. how we maybe regulation, yeah. but maybe just more broadly, like ideological change of how do we think about efficiency mm. versus, uh, you know, equality, efficiency versus growth, um, mm. distribution of resources. Um, and, you know, those are things where um, it may not even be that the changes that we go through, you know, let's say we have big changes in tax policy that are far more redistributive. You know, it may not be the direct effect of like money going from rich people to now poor mm-hmm. people and, you know, now they're happy, but basically a shift in how we talk about things because of policies roughly along those lines, such that people are like, oh, well, because this seems a little bit more fair, now I'm willing to buy into the capitalist, like, self-interested perspective again. Of mm-hmm. By pursuing self-interest, I trust that the gains will be spread around well. Yeah. And so we can, like, get excited about capitalism again mm-hmm. because we make things a little bit more equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might take something that looks, like, super socialist to get to yeah, that point. Um, uh. I, I'm, yeah, fascinated by the relationship between those two forces. And this brings to something which I remember from political studying political science was that most of the things that go on in our daily lives haven't been affected by politics yet. So, so climate change, we haven't really experienced any negative effects from climate change. I mean, some people certainly have, but in our everyday life, it's like, Oh, it's a little bit warmer outside. It's nice. You know, it's like until we haven't, we haven't had that kind of uh, moment where all the things we hear about are affecting our lives on a broad scale and it's going, I might start to happen soon enough and what you're talking about with kind of, but that's, you're talking from a more kind of uh, abundance, my, uh, 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 kind of feeling the benefits of technology as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe this comes from a place of thinking that like carrots are better incentive structures mm-hmm. than sticks, mm-hmm. generally speaking. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think more about, you know, how do we make uh, self-interest, seem like it's working well for everyone, but also genuinely work well for everyone. Like you want to achieve both. Um, And yeah, when I think about things like climate change, yeah, it is very tricky. These kinds of topics where um, you're definitely talking about levels of abstraction and again, forces that are non-linear and that's hard for most people to wrap their heads around, Um, you know, to say that, oh, can I say that this storm in particular was this level of bad because Mm. of the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere? Mm. Eh, More along the lines of I can say that generally speaking for this given time period, there will be more storms and they will be more intense. Mm. Uh, There will be more volatility in conditions. Uh, You know, even if that does translate to, listen, like you're going to have flooding in the farmlands and mm-hmm. fires in mm-hmm. California and hurricanes, you know, impacting northern regions where typically like, oh, that's just the south yeah. that has that as a problem. Yeah. Um, all of these things can be true, but also hard for people to say like, oh, yes, this that's is specifically is about, mm-hmm. you know, our policies around, you know, energy and transportation and farming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So very hard to get people to connect you know, these downside risks to lived phenomenon, even once they start to impact millions of people like mm. we are seeing. Mm. Yeah, that's really brilliant insight. Um, so so we got about five minutes left. What is kind of one book or idea or uh, concept that you've come across in the last month or so that's really changed your ability to create or be less stressed? Okay. Uh, 
so in the last month is an interesting constraint there. Um, <laughs> Because a lot of my thoughts on books were about books from the last couple of years. Uh Um, So answering that question, um, a book that I've been thoroughly enjoying uh, that roughly touches on these things is The Writer's Journey. Mm. Um, Subtitle, perhaps more appropriate, more interesting, uh, structure uh, mythic structures for writers. Um, So this is by Christopher Vogler. Um, Basically, it's again, touches on the Joseph Campbell monomyth, but with the perspective more oriented around uh, examples from film rather than, um, you know, myths from cultures around the world and, you know, that you get from Joseph Campbell, uh, you know, a little hard to relate to some of those stories. Um, you know, the monomyth structure as a lens does help like, Oh yeah. Okay. I can connect this to a fairy tale. Maybe I'm familiar with, but you know, looking at this structure from the perspective of star Wars or the wizard of Oz uh, definitely makes things more relatable, more concrete. Yeah. Um, and so what I've, really like about it in addition to just that aspect to it of taking stories that everyone has basically internalized and probably like recite from memory mm. the the beats mm. uh which exactly line up with the, the mythic structure uh generally is he also ties in another element of campbell's thinking um basically the work of Car- the psychologist yeah. carl Jung. Mm. yeah mm. and so this is something that I've been thinking about in terms of, again, storytelling for entrepreneurs and founders and, you know, the idea of your self-narrative, but, um, you know, what these symbols that we find recurring in stories represent, Mm -hmm. what uh, living up to expectations or deviating them Mm -hmm. from them does in terms of, you know, how that strikes you psychologically on these, you know, core fundamentally human ideas, you know, the Carl Jung collective unconscious, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, how our brains have been wired, um, you know, to ha- basically handle uh, interactions with, you know, the size of, you know, a group of people, roughly, you know, of a tribe, mm-hmm. you know, let's say 40, 50 people. So, mm-hmm. you know, your extended family or now probably the more relevant group along those lines is like work. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But the extent to which, you know, we definitely do think about these symbols in the context of daily life more than I, I think is intuitive. Mm. Um, that's something that I've been playing around a lot with. Mm. So, you know, if, if you maybe tried to read Campbell and you're like, what is this? Um, or, you know, have vaguely heard of, you know, Carl Jung, but maybe, I don't know, you heard about it in the context of like Jordan Peterson and that turned you <laughs> off. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think that this is a good way to get at those concepts. Uh. Um, and, you know, do it in a way that you'll be able to easily, you know, have the references and examples be relatable, but then also be able to map it onto other productive things. So a slight tangent, um, something I've been become aware of Carl Jung, uh, is that there's this time period of the 1800s and mid 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 1800s where, um, globalization started to have the types of effects that we're now seeing and this is also the time of rediscovery of metaphysics like what you're talking about where we were coming off of the farm and now we're able to kind of ponder these deeper questions which people had been pondering thousands of years ago but then we had lost that knowledge so we had lost most of this knowledge most of the scriptures both in the west and the east so most people think that the dark age is something that only happened to the west it actually happened to the east as well most of their scriptures were lost and people uh, lost the practices of meditation 
Uh, and then there, there's a rediscovery and a re- also uh, creation of new knowledge. Um, and so something really interesting happened once the East and West mixed was that Carl Jung started to read into these these different things that were happening that were being rediscovered about the East because Britain had gone and colonized uh, India and started to discover more scriptures. And then Jung started to read about it. And he actually came up with the modern chakra system. So if you've ever heard of chakras, uh, that's not something that they were... The chakras existed a thousand years ago, but they were very different from what we practice them today. The way that they're practiced today is a direct correlation of Jung. Uh, so this idea that our root chakra is basically uh, connected with our sense of survival and our sense of uh, uh, fear and everything like that, that's something that directly comes from Jung, basically, his uh, imposition of his ideas onto, onto Eastern thought. Um, well, what I think is really fun then is to then read something like The Courage to be Disliked, mm, which yeah. is, mm. you know, then uh, derived from the work of a Japanese philosopher who is yeah. very into the work of Carl Jung. And so it's mm, like, yeah, so uh-huh. this is like Jungian psychology with, you know, Japanese characteristics. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It's fascinating to read these like twist on a twist of a twist of an mm. idea. Yeah. Um, and again, it just goes back to this idea that I've been talking about throughout of you know, what looks like a unique novel idea is actually like the fourth iteration of some core nugget of a you know philosophy or perspective. Interesting. Yeah, that's so cool. I would love to sit down here and talk for a couple more hours, but <laughs> but I think we'll keep this one a little bit short. Uh, so if it, for for our listeners to kind of connect with you and find out more about what you're doing, how, how do you suggest they do that? Yeah, so um, best place to find me is on Twitter where I'm uh, just... Uh, insanely addicted to the platform (laughs) you will definitely find me there in real time Uh, so my handle there is at Kyle B. Russell um, Russell with two S's and two L's and then um, you know sometimes there you'll find longer form thoughts that I post on a blog that I've more recently been uh, kind of re-engaged with so that's kylerussell.today so there I'm trying to write Kind of for me, without the incentives of you know the network you get on uh, Medium, the dopamine hit you get from uh, you know hitting something that people uh, connect with. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's a certain genre of writing that is basically uh, like this. This has the veneer of being counterintuitive, but actually you all believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, um, while I'm a fan of Naval Ravikant, a lot of, some of his like kind of aphoristic tweeting is uh-huh. roughly along those lines of like, uh-huh. this feels, this feels unique, but also I totally believe it even mm-hmm. before I saw it. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> which, you know, very loose line between that and like insight and insight that just looks, you know, it's been presented in a novel way that feels super compelling or fresh. Um, but I've been trying to basically break out of the incentive structures and just write mm. the way my brain thinks and, you know, with the mm-hmm. poor grammar that, uh, you know, I intuitively spit out, uh, some meandering thoughts, lots of tangents, but, uh, ho- hopefully leads to something unique. Well, I'll check that out for sure. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy.
because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.